Today, um, we're going to begin something that I'm going to lead into for the summer. And before we get started with it, I want to um, tell you at the end of the service today what we're going to be doing as we head into the summer topically. But I want to start by telling you a, a story, actually a couple stories that lead to one significant story in the next 45 minutes I have here uh, to speak to you. Um, so, um, but I want to begin by asking you a question, and you can help me by participating here in person and online. I'll tell you how to help online. If you're in the room, first of all, would you rate, if you have, if you have siblings, how many of you have brothers or sisters, you, you have siblings, raise your hand if you have siblings. Don't be shy. If your hand's down, it means you have zero. You're an only child, right? Only child, no hands. If you have siblings, raise your hand. Okay, good. Now, if you're, uh, if, I want you to raise how many fingers for how many siblings you have. If you have one, hold up one finger. If you have three, hold up three. If you have more than ten, uh, God bless you. I'm praying for you. I uh, don't know what to say. We had a person in the first hour who had 16 siblings. 16. So, okay, I guess, so what am I seeing today? I have three here. Do I have any more than five anywhere? Five right here? So are six of you? Uh, total, growing up. You had two? Okay. Anybody else have more than that? Four? Um, I, I was one of five. How many? Uh, four others? Uh, cricket? Okay. And I see you have two back there. In the two? Okay. And if you're online, do me a favor, and you could t- check in, uh, on, type in, you know, on the chat there, how many you have. You have, if you have siblings, if you're an only child, or if you have siblings, let us know. That's crazy. Um, in fact, uh, Betty, Gray, and Sandy are working in the nursery right now. They were here first hour. They're working in the nursery uh, this hour. And uh, Betty, of course, she's, what, about 85, I think? She's the oldest of 10. So we had a couple of large families represented in the first service. Yeah, that was neat. Anyhow, this next question is not for you to answer out loud because, well, you'll know why when I ask it. We don't, this, this is a whole can of work, you know. But here's the question. How is your relationship with your siblings, okay? Like, is it good or not? Now, don't answer that, but just wondering, how is your relationship? Did you, were you used to be, like, fighting when you were young and then you became close as you got older? Or did you actually, like, drift apart and fight when you got older? Or did you always get along or did you always struggle? What's your relationship like with your siblings? And... I want to say something that I think maybe you think about this, maybe you haven't, but it's a thought worth considering today, that we we come here to worship Jesus, we sing songs about his his sacrifice and his love, but we understand that Jesus had siblings. Did you think about that? Jesus had siblings. He had brothers and sisters. Uh, Jesus, we know, was a virgin born. Uh, Mary was a virgin. She was conceived through the Holy Spirit, through the power of God. She was engaged to a man named Joseph, and he it almost destroyed their relationship, but uh, through divine intervention, they stayed together. After Jesus was born, they were married, and they had a bunch of kids of their own. So Jesus had a bunch of half-brothers and half-sisters. And we know some of his brothers' names because they're recorded in the, in the Gospels. His sisters are not named a lot of times in ancient culture, as unfair as it seems, but it's not surprising. And 2,000 years ago, let alone parts of the world today, let alone just 100 years ago in our own country, women didn't always get the recognition that, that men did in culture, unfortunately. And so his sisters are not named, but his brothers are named. Jesus had brothers, he had sisters, he had um, a mom, and then Joseph raised him as his son, as his stepdad. And so he had siblings. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus? Like if, you, if your siblings irritate you, imagine growing up with Jesus. Seriously, like... Um, um, 
so who took the last piece of, who took the last brownie? I know, Mom, it wasn't Jesus, I know. Okay, goodness gracious. I mean, you know, when, when he turned into a pimple-popping teenager, did you kind of like just, oh, I'm just wringing his neck. I mean, you, you talk about it being difficult, having, you know, being a younger sibling. Some people really struggle with their older siblings, especially their older siblings shine, like they shine bright, you know. Like you go to school and you're, oh, you're so-and-so's little brother. He was a star quarterback of the football team. Are you going to play? Nope. <laughs> Not even going to try, you know. So, I mean, sometimes you never know. Or sometimes it's like, yeah, I'm going to be better than that. I'm going to do better. And, and so the sibling thing, how was it growing up as Jesus' siblings? Well, here's the inside scoop. They were not always impressed. They weren't impressed. Nor was his hometown always impressed with him. Let me give you a little background so you can, you can see a little bit of this as we build to a story later in this hour. Mark 3, verse 20 says, One day, one time, Jesus entered a house, and the crowds began to gather again. I'm going to pause here in the middle of the verse to set the stage. I should have done that first. Jesus grew up in the, in the, within his family, and he was very quiet. He was, of course, the prophecy that he would come, the virgin birth. There's a story about his birth. There's a story about him as a toddler when the wise men showed up finally. There's a story about Jesus at age 12 going to the temple and getting lost. Again, I'm sure his brothers thought that was their fault. I mean, just how, how did that go, right? But here's the thing. It's crazy. Jesus was quiet until the age of 30. His dad was a carpenter. He learned the carpentry trade. He was considered a carpenter himself. And he's quiet. He does not start his earthly ministry until the age of 30. He was, he was there, but for a while, his uh, older cousin, John the Baptist, became known to kind of prepare the way, so to speak. And, and Jesus started at 30, and he was so impactful with his miracles, his healing, his feeding the multitudes, his teaching was so powerful and so impactful that the nations around Judea all heard about him, and it drew a following. And Jesus used those three years to explain that he was going to die, and he was going to rise again, and no one was really believing that until he pulled it off. But he was there, to, and, and then once he did, did rise again, I mean, and hundreds of people saw a risen Savior, it just turned everything upside down so that at Pentecost, of course, um, you saw amazing things taking place and Christianity exploded onto the scene and here we are today. But um, when Jesus was first starting, he started at age 30 and spent three years kind of getting everyone's attention. So at this time, Jesus' brothers and sisters were most likely also grown. They're probably all adults now under his age of 30, but probably not children anymore. And Jesus enters a house in Mark, 30, Mark 3, verse 20. The crowds began to gather. Wherever Jesus went, the crowds would gather because he did amazing things. Soon, he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. You ever get so busy helping people, there's no time to take a break? Verse 21, when his family heard what was happening... They tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. Now, this is his family. This is your moral support. They're like, what is he doing? We got to get him out of there. He's out of his mind. What's wrong? Like, imagine, you know, you've ever done something and your family's like, they don't seem to, to get the support, support it. Like, you're like, come on, support this. Jesus is like, I'm doing God's work. And they're like, you're crazy, man. We gotta get you out of here. Someone's gotta. So we gotta. We need an intervention with Jesus right now, because he is really going crazy. 
So this is his family. This is, this is mom and brothers and sisters. They're concerned about him. And in the next several verses, if you were to read this chapter, the next several verses, even the religious community who always opposed Jesus because Jesus didn't play with their religious rules, so they didn't like him, the religious community around him began to um, you know, kind of accuse him of using demonic influence to, cast, you know, to heal people. And Jesus put them in their place right away. Meanwhile, his family, who is concerned about him being out of his mind and trying to take him away, they're trying to intervene. So we pick up the story 10 verses later, verse 31. It says, Then Jesus' mother and his brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. They're like, okay, someone go into the crowd and tell him, get out here. We need to talk, we need to, talk to you. So they're sending the word into him. Verse 32, there was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, uh, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. And Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. And he makes a powerful statement, verse 35, anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, this could almost seem like Jesus was being dismissive and insulting to his family. He was not saying they don't, weren't important. He was making a point in a teaching moment about the significance, because some of you know what it's like to have friends that become closer than a brother. People that become important, that, that just become like someone that's just that in, integral to your life. And Jesus was saying, within our faith community, these people here around me, the, this crowd around me, he said, who do the will of God, who, who follow God, these are my family. Not, not putting his family down. In fact, the truth is, if anything, he could have been insulted because they were there trying to get him out of it. They're like, you're going crazy. And he's like, hey, family, I'm doing God's will. This is, this is, this is a connection point. So this is Jesus' background. Let me read a few, another passage in Mark chapter 6, three chapters later. 6 verse 1. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. Now Nazareth was the little town in the country of Galilee, which is near Judea. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was raised where his uh, parents had, uh, took him. Uh, in, this, in Galilee, in the little town of Nazareth, as far as we could tell, was a very poor, a poor town, uh, pop, uh, poverty, and just it was, it, wasn't a, it was not a rich town for sure. And Jesus grew up there, and in this part of the story, Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They, they asked, where did he get all this wisdom? And the power to perform such miracles. Notice verse 3. Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter. The son of Mary. And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. So it names his brothers actually here. James, Joseph, uh, Judas, also known as Jude, and Simon. And his sisters, they're unnamed, his sisters live right here among us. And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. So here's he, he's in his hometown, and they're like, wait, this guy's a carpenter. By the way, his, dad's not, his stepdad's not mentioned here. A lot of people speculate that Joseph had died by this point. 
for, and people's life expectancy was very fickle and short sometimes. But they mentioned his mom, his brothers, his sisters. And they said, this, is, this kid, we know his family. We watched him grow up. He's a carpenter. Who, who, and they're looking at his miracles and they're saying, this isn't right. And they're scoffing and they're offended. Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. Makes sense, right? I mean, it's hard to impress the people who once changed your messy diaper, I guess, you know, or something. I don't know. So he's all saying, um, hey, what do you know? No one here is buying it. So even though he's doing miracles, they just couldn't get past this little Jesus. Come on. We know his family. And his brothers weren't helping, as we see earlier, as we're going to see in a moment here. They're all like, yeah, tell us about it. And verse 5 says, And because of their unbelief, he could not do many, any miracles among them, except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed. He was amazed at their unbelief. Now, I'm setting a Let me take, take it to another setup story here real quick. Sometime later, towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he is, he, his brothers don't buy it. They still don't. And, and, and Jesus is trying to stay out of Jerusalem area because at this point, the uh, religious leaders want to kill him. And he, he was, said he was going to die. He was going to die and rise again. That was his plan. But it wasn't time yet, and they were trying to kill him already. So he was kind of staying away until it was time. And we pick up the story in John chapter 7 and verse 1. It says, And Jesus traveled around Galilee, that's his home country. He wanted to stay out of Judea, where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon, soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. Check this out, verse 3. And Jesus' brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. So basically they're like, please leave Galilee, leave here, go back to Judea. So your followers, those who follow you can see your miracles. They're not done yet. Verse 4, they said, you can't be famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. Interesting, isn't it? So his brothers are like, are you still here in Galilee? I mean, you kind of spoil, I don't go out in the town. Someone's out there saying, hey, Jesus is around. Like, can you just go, go to Judea? There's a festival going on. Your followers are there. Don't hide here. Show yourself to the world. They didn't believe. They're just having that tension there. It's very important to understand that. Don't miss that verse 5 right there. His brothers. That means James didn't believe on him. Jude didn't believe on him. The others, Joseph and, and uh, they didn't believe. Okay? Now, here's what happens that we don't see in... We're going to see something in Scripture. It's almost one of those things where you ever watch a sh- movie or a show and you miss the middle and it's just like you went from here to there, like what happened in the middle? What we find later on in the Scriptures is that his brothers ended up believing on him, particularly James and Jude. And we have some historical record to talk about that happening. But there's not a lot said about it in, in a lot of verses. But what we understand from what happens later in Scripture and from history is that they did not believe on him as we see here, but they did later. Because one day, their brother, who, who kept saying, I'm going to die for the sins of the world, God sent me, I'm the Messiah, and I'm going to rise again, 
Well, their brother went and pulled it off. He went and pulled it off. He died. And then they were probably there. Their mom was right at the foot of the cross. They were probably at least pretty close by. If not, they at least heard their mom grieving in the days ahead after he was buried. And then three days later, he rose again. They and hundreds of others saw him. It started, it changed everything to where within 50 days of his crucifixion, thousands of people believed and turned the world upside down. And here we are 2,000 years later across the planet worshiping him. But his brothers saw him die and rise again, just like he said, and then they believed. And James became a believer, and Jude became they both wrote letters that are included in our New Testament scriptures, or what we call the Christian scriptures. They're both included there. And James believed. And James especially became amazing. He became from a brother who was a skeptic to a guy who says, well, what do you know? He really was who he said he was. He died and rose again. To a man who became a leading voice in the early church. And James wrote a letter later on. And look what James says in his letter. There's one letter in the New Testament written by James. And it's called the book of James. <laughs> and by the way, before I turn there, let me just say this to you real quick. Um, don't get confused by the name James. There was a couple different James in the New Testament. It was a common, it's a common name to use in the English translation. James, John, kind of like a lot of names are common today. Like my name, for example, very common name you hear all the time. Your, your laughter hurts me. No, uh, Arlen, no one ever, who's named Arlen, right? If I go to a store or someplace and someone says, hey, Arlen, I know they're talking to me. But some of you, maybe your names were common, so you wonder, right? And so, you know, if someone said, hey, James, there's a cop, or they said, hey, Jude, that's kind of funny. Uh, they would have known, the brothers would have known his, uh, their names were common. So James was a common name in the scriptures and so there was a disciple named James. James, the disciple, was the brother of John the disciple. And that James and this James, don't get them confused. That James actually died pretty early. After Jesus died and rose again, that James, the disciple, was arrested by King Herod who ruled under the Roman government, authority locally under Rome. And Herod, to please the religious Jews who hated Jesus and his message, they arrested James and he had James beheaded. Is, was the first one. They all ended up dying for Jesus at some point. But James was the first to be killed. But that was not the brother of Jesus. The brother of Jesus became a leader in the early church. That is amazing. That is amazing that he became the brother, that became, they became the leader in the early church. Here's why that's amazing. Because if you picture how politics and organizations, companies, neighborhoods, communities, literal national politics, church, Sometimes, unfortunately, not here, but I've, I know churches that they get politically in their, their pecking orders. It's so silly sometimes when you see that. Well, can you imagine the church at Jerusalem? Who should be first in line to lead that thing? Well, I would think the 12 disciples of Jesus, right? Like Peter and John, the ones who were there the whole time with Jesus, who followed him closely. Maybe the 70 other followers that followed Jesus. Maybe the 120 who were in the upper room. So when the church of Jerusalem turns into thousands of people, Whoever's in charge is probably one of the 12 disciples, Peter and John. And yet, before the story is over, James, the brother of Jesus, becomes not just a leader, but the most influential leader in the church of Jerusalem. Can you picture that in some context? If that was like some places, they would be like, excuse me? Uh, we're the ones that been following Jesus these last three years. What were you doing? Oh, that's right. You didn't believe. You were skeptical. 
So sit in the back and mind your own business. But James was so powerfully consumed with the message of Jesus, and he was so influential, he became a leading voice in Jerusalem church. And here's what's amazing. If you were to study the culture of that time, because the, the, the Jewish people believed that a Messiah was coming, they believed a Messiah was coming, and so there were a lot of false messiahs that were popping up. And usually the messiahs that popped up that were false were political ones that were going to rescue them from Roman rule and chase the Roman government out of the country. And so while they're dealing with these fake messiahs coming up and they would all go, try to go to war, create an army, they get killed, usually that guy's brother would take the mantle and say, my brother wasn't the real hero, it's me, follow me instead. But James followed Jesus, and Jesus laid on his life and died and then rose again. And when James stepped to the plate, James never said, follow me, I'm the real deal. He said, follow my brother and believe on him. He's the real deal. In fact, when John, James wrote his first letter, his only letter we know about, called the book of James, here's how he begins his letter. Ready? James 1 verse 1. This letter is from James, a slave of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. Here's the man who was the brother to Jesus, who was a skeptic and didn't believe, who saw him actually do what he said he was going to do, die and rise again. And James became a believer and said, my brother is actually not, he's my Lord. I'm not here to, say, to build me up. I'm here to say he's my Lord and I'm his servant. How many of you ever called your brother or sister your Lord? Not sarcastically either, not sarcastically, for real, right? What would it take for you? What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was God? <laughs> like nothing my brother could ever do to convince me, like no way, right? And yet James was so convinced that Jesus was the Son of God, came from God, that he was so convinced in who his brother was and said he was and what he did, that James called him his Lord, called himself his servant, and gave his life, led in the church at Jerusalem. And by the way, James would die for the name of Jesus. Church history tells us that later on, the religious community who opposed the good news of Jesus, the old, the old school religion of, of, of Judaism, they were so upset that they tried to kill Jesus, and then he rose again. They were upset with his followers. That was James was a leader they took stones one day, and in the streets of Jerusalem, they stoned James to death. And he would die for the name of his Lord and Savior, who he served, Jesus, whom he grew up with. Remarkable. Now, why am I telling us that? Because I want to tell something about James in the, in the weeks to come. And I'll explain in just a minute here. But beforehand, i got to tell you one more story. And this one more story is the story that I think is the most interesting about James the leader. Because who was James? He was the brother of Jesus. He was a brother. He was a believer. Not always, but he became a believer. He was a leader in the church of Jerusalem. But I got to tell you one story about James as he led in the church of Jerusalem. Because if you, if you get this one glimpse, you'll see his influence and you'll see his wisdom. But it's kind of a pretty important story, so I need you to kind of just reset with me and check out the story in Acts chapter 15 for a, few, for a few minutes or so here. Acts 15, what's happening is this. Let's, read, let's look at verse 1 and I'll start. 
Acts 15, 1. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers that unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a mouthful. Let's dial it back. First of all, Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas were, uh, Paul was uh, also a religious skeptic who came to faith in Jesus and became a great missionary. And Paul and Barnabas began to travel not just to the Jewish people, to their own nation, but to all the other nations around them, not just to the Jews who lived in those nations, but to all the people of all nationalities, telling them that God loves them and that they were invited into faith in Jesus Christ to believe in them and put their faith in the love of God. Well, this was hard for a lot of the Jewish people. They had a lot of prejudice, but we're not knocking them for their prejudice because a lot of us in our culture, we've had a lot of prejudice as a nation through our years as well that we're still fleshing out, aren't we? So people can all be wrong and people can all learn and grow. But here's my point, is that the, the, the early church was learning and growing because nationally, the Jewish people at that time were very, very segregated and prejudiced. They considered everyone else outsiders. And the reason why was because in their ancient Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, they were kind of taught that God was going to send the Messiah through them, and they were a chosen people and to keep themselves untainted from the world around them. And so they were very set apart in a lot of intense ways from the culture around them. And so to them, they were, it was them versus everybody else. It was Jews and everyone else was a Gentile. And it was, it was kind of a forbidden thing through their ancient culture and their religion. In fact, when, when actually after the captivity years, when Jews and Gentiles were married, they called their children Samaritans or half-breeds. They called them dogs, actually. It was a very, very hostile environment. And again, we understand in our own culture how, how bad these things can be between groups of people who get stuck on who they are. And so that's what they were wrestling with. But Jesus wasn't about that. The old Hebrew scriptures even said that the good news that was coming through Jesus was for the entire world. Jesus made that clear. When Jesus went back to heaven, he said, take my message to all the nations. But it was still hard to get it through people's heads because to them, it's still about them. So Paul and Barnabas got it. They began to go everywhere and say, God loves all people. God loves you. And he sent his son to die for your sins to show forgiveness. And he rose again to show you eternal life and, and to show you that God's good news, the gospel, the good news is that God is love and he welcomes you back with arms open wide if you'll believe and receive it. And as these other non-Jewish people, these Gentiles, began to believe, some of the Jewish people who were first believers struggled with it. And some of the men from Judea arrived where they were preaching in Antioch. Antioch, by the way, was the second hottest church anywhere. Like the church at Jerusalem was kind of the first one on the scene. And as the gospel spread, the church at Antioch became a hop in place. The problem was in every city like Antioch, there were Jewish synagogues from centuries since the captivity years before. And they had their Jewish customs and their, and their, their ways. And the, the Gentiles, were the, they lived in their cities, but they were outsiders. And so now these Gentiles are saying, hey, we're like you. We believe in Jesus like you. For the Jewish believers, they're like, well, wait a minute now. We're, you're not like us. You're, you're Gentiles. And so these people are showing up saying, well, you've got to be circumcised as required by the law or you cannot be saved. Well, that's crazy talk, folks, because they didn't, weren't saved that way. Jesus was very clear. We're not saved by works. Jesus died because we're all sinners. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not of works. And yet here they are saying, well, you've got to get circumcised. In other words, you've got to have a surgery. You all know what circumcision is, right? 
Like the Jewish kids were raised with that since they were little babies that was done to them. But they're like to these other people, hey, you've got to go back and have a surgery, guys, or you really can't be in with God. I imagine the next Sunday at the synagogue, the, the room was filled with only women and children. <laughs> All the men were in the parking lot like, uh, you guys go ahead. Uh, I'm listening to the game on the, on the stereo, the chariot here. I'm going to, uh, that's just not for me. You know, I mean, so they're all, I mean, so this is not good. In fact, verse 2 says this, Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church there decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. Yes, please settle this for us, right? So they're going to have a conversation about this. Like, what is this? These non-Jewish, these other nations, these other people, they've got to become like us in order to be in with God. They've got to kind of adapt our culture in order to be accepted by God. So they go back to Jerusalem. Verse 4, when they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything that God had done through them, all the believers that were coming from all nations and all peoples and all races. Verse 5, but, there's always a but, right? When something good's happening, look for the but. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. Whoa. Now, the Pharisees, that name sounds familiar. If you've been in church a while, they're kind of the big bad guys of Jesus' time. The religious crowd who opposed him because he didn't fit in with how they did God. And so they're dealing with this whole tension with the Pharisees. But these, don't, don't dismiss these Pharisees. Some people want to dismiss Pharisees as unbelievers. These were believing people. People who were raised religiously, but they saw Jesus died and rose again like he said he would, and they believed on him. They, they came to faith in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, not of works. But they're looking at these non-Jewish people, these Gentiles, and they're saying, oh no, you guys you guys have to become like us. Tell the Gentiles they've got to be circumcised and they even added, follow the law of Moses. You ever try to follow the law of Moses here? Like that's a big, that's a, that was like 613 edicts written or orally passed down from the law of Moses. Like no one follows the law of Moses. If you think you follow the law of Moses, I want to talk with you later on and have a conversation because not, not only do you and I, but we're not even Jewish people, but they didn't, do it. no one could do that. And now they're saying the Gentiles have to do it. They have to become like us and even better versions of us in order to really be in with God. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue, the verse says. Now, to me, there's no, nothing to resolve, but that's how problems go sometimes. You've got to sit down and say, okay, let's have a long conversation. That shouldn't be necessary. So in the beginning, Peter steps up. Peter steps up to the conversation, and Peter had already had his moment where not only did he, you know, was he, did he believe in Jesus and follow him, but he realized their prejudices that they had as a people, and he already realized that the gospel was the same for everybody. So Peter tells his story, and in verse 10, here's what Peter says. He says, so why are you now challenging God? Wow, that's a strong statement right there. Why are you now challenging God? By burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear. He's like, guys, come on now. 
Don't challenge God with this thing. You're trying to put something on the Gentiles. We couldn't do it. We were raised. We were raised since we were little kids in the ancient, our Hebrew scriptures. They weren't. We had it our whole lives. We couldn't even bear that yoke. Why are you trying to burden those guys with something we can't? Guys, come on. Those not be hypocrites here. You're asking something impossible of other people. And he says in verse 11, Peter says, We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. By the way, don't miss that message. Don't miss it from Peter himself. Don't miss it from the first church. We believe we're all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Verse 12. Everyone, when Peter said that, everyone listened quietly. Everyone's like, okay, good word, ouch. He's right. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done among them, through them among the Gentiles. So now they're kind of getting the story straight. What are we trying to do? What are we trying to do as a church to make it hard for other people to be more like us in order to be with God? When they're done talking, I'm telling the story because I wanted you to see James in the story, the brother of Jesus. Look at verse 13. When they had finished, James, the brother of Jesus, James stood up and said, Brothers, listen to me. And in the next few verses, what James does is he basically gets, goes back to their Hebrew scriptures and tells them, from ancient times, God always said the gospel was for all people, including all nations of people, including the Gentiles, including other people, not us. He basically gives them a sermon. And when he's done, in verse 19, here's what James says. And this is, a, this is such a good statement. I want you to, this ought to be written down somewhere. This is powerful. Don't rush past this statement. It's so big. James said, and so my judgment is, in other words, as, a, as kind of the leading voice of the church of Jerusalem, and so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He says, listen, fellas, listen, ladies, listen, we should not make it difficult. It's not difficult to come to God. Jesus did the difficult part on the cross. He called us to believe in him and receive his grace. As Peter just said, all saved by the undeserved, undeserving and be received by the, grace, by the grace and mercy of God. Let's not make it difficult for other people who are not like us, who are turning to God. Why? doesn't make it difficult by trying to tell them they have to be like us in order to turn to God. And then he says something very weird that almost makes no sense in our context, but I want you to see it here real quick. Verse 20, he says, Instead, we should write them and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. And you're like, what in the world? That verse has, has caused many conversations through the years for many people. Like, what does that list of four things or so have to do with anything? And if you'll, you'll miss it if you don't understand, and we'll show, look at the next verse momentarily. James was saying, guys, we understand the tension here, is that as Jews are living in every city and they have their synagogues and they've been listening to the law of Moses their whole lives, and they've heard the gospel and they've believed on Jesus, these Gentiles who don't practice life their way believe in Jesus, but they're so contrary in their lifestyle that it's causing conflict. So he's saying to the Jewish people, stop trying to complicate the good news. It's simply faith in Christ. And tell the Gentile people, try not to be offensive to the Jews who were raised that way. Just do these few things and you can get along. Let's find peace in the church because as Jesus said over and over again, love is by calling hard 
And though all men will know you're my disciples that way if you're together. He explains in the next verse, verse 21, for these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath day for generations, many generations. In other words, the people who live there, who've been scattered since the captivity years, and you're coming to faith in God, and there's a conflict here. So Gentiles, try not to be offensive with your prejudices in your faith community. Jewish people, stop trying to tell them they've got to do something extra to be, light, to be saved because salvation is God's free gift. Quit making it difficult. In fact, that's the verse. I want you to see it again. I love that verse. My judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. How were they making it difficult? Well, we know how they were making it difficult, don't we? They were saying to them, hey guys, to be with him, you got to be like us. You got to adapt our culture, our practices, bear our markings, do the things that we do. Then you got to act like us, you got to feel like us, you got to become a good, if you become a Jewish person, then maybe God will have you too. And that's unnecessary. All they needed to do is put their faith in God. And so stop making it difficult for those turning to God by trying to make them, because that's what we do, that's what culture does. We try to convert people to our image. That's what religion's done this for as long as religion's been around. Religion has been used before Christianity and including, sadly, in Christianity, wrongly used. It's been used to control people. Usually it's to make men, usually powerful, wealthy, to control. A lot of damage has been done through the years in the name of God by people who are trying to sabotage it for their own gains or to whatever. And, and, and James is like, we can't do that, guys. We can't do that. We can't make it difficult. This is the brother of Jesus. He says, guys, I didn't believe. I was a skeptic. And one day I believed. It's that simple. Stop making it hard for them. They don't need to be us. They need to be a believer. They don't need to become Jews. They need to be followers of Jesus. That's it. This is the tension point. Now, I'm going to come back to that thought in just a minute here because it's so good. But let me tell you what we're going to do for the next few weeks, first of all. I told you earlier that James wrote one letter that we know about. If you were to read your New Testament, you'll find four accounts of Jesus' life. You'll find a history of the early church called the book of Acts. And then you've got a whole bunch of letters mostly written to churches and sometimes to church leaders. Most were written by the Apostle Paul. Paul the Apostle wrote most of them. But one was written by James, the brother of Jesus. And I want us to study it together the next, well, for a while. Here's why. James had a local audience in Jerusalem. James could teach to the people who gathered, and he could get to know the people who gathered. But James, the only way to get the world, his message is to write it down in a book. And he did. Now, I, I understand a little bit of, of the, that task. I've been writing a book myself. I've actually written two books. One is in the publishing process now, and the other one is first rounds of edit. And I want to write some more. Because sometimes I realize I have a local uh, presence, and I have people I get to know, and they get to know me, and I, have, I can teach, and people weekly online in person. But sometimes you want to leave something that someone may be further away, someone time after I'm gone or who will never meet me, or maybe I can, I can share a message with somebody else. So I had to decide if I was to write any books, what's the most important one I write first? And I picked my first one. I said, this is the one I want to do first. Because if one gets out there, this is the message I want to get out there. So it's, it's written. It's being worked on right now. Now here's my point. 
That's what James is doing. James is speaking to a congregation in Jerusalem every week. But, but he writes a letter, he writes a book that outlives him. 2,000 years later, we have it in our Christian scriptures, and he sends it to all the people everywhere. Well, if he has the chance to write one thing down on paper to carry further than his reach can go, it must have been what he thought was most important. So I thought we'd take this summer and study the things that James talks about in his one book, his one letter. And it's awesome stuff about getting along with people, about uh, our relationship with our, our, each other, the wealthy, the, uh, the needy, the, the, going through tough times, enduring difficult times, dealing with our tongue and the sins of our tongue and how we behave with that. Talks about um, prayer, talks about healing, talks about so many awesome things. We're, we're going to envy, we're going to discuss the things that James talked about. But it's going to take me longer than the summer, so I want to get a head start. We're going to start next week because I want to be done before August is over. So to do that, we've got to start next week because I'm going to have a couple of Sundays I'm off this summer on vacations. And we have one Sunday to talk about kind of the church uh, fiscal year. So basically, I'm going to start next week to get going. And we're going to study James 1 letter. What did James think was important? I think, here's what I think you'll find to be interesting in the next many weeks. That the things that James thought were important to write then to, the, his, to his readers 2,000 years ago are surprisingly relevant to you and me, on the other side of the planet, 2,000 years later. We're going to study what those things are together starting next week, with a few weeks off in the middle, here and there. But for today, as we wrap this up today, I want to take James's statement he made earlier, that beautiful statement he made, and I want to encourage you, some of you ought to make it a screenshot on your phone or on your notebook, or write it down somewhere. I would love to get this made into a plaque for my office because it's that powerful. This is the statement that I want to take home with us today from James. Let's not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. Jesus reached a lot of people with this message. Not everyone became one of his 12 disciples who slept in the, you know, with foxes that had no place to lay their head, the birds have not. You know, the, 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 nomadic, homeless people that followed Jesus closely, that wasn't the whole crowd that heard his message and believed. We're called to be followers of Jesus, but we got to first believe. When people start turning to God, it's so easy for us to make it difficult on their faith. Let's not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. Jesus was amazing at how he served the world in his time. And James said, I know my brother, and I know what we're called to do. Let's serve the message. Now, listen carefully. How do we do this? I think there's three areas. There's the, ne- the broad church, like all the churches, the, the broader church. There's our specific church, and there's you as an individual. To the broader church across the world and across our nation, I would say, let's, as a church is everywhere, stop making it difficult for those turning to God. It is tragic how the church has complicated the good news. We have made a, about a, a lot of other stuff. I've seen churches argue over decor. And again, we don't have these problems at Lighthouse. Some of you, if if you're new to church or you're new here, or maybe we've been blessed all these years, I don't know. But I know the stories. I got lots of friends. I've been around. They fight over decor. They fight over church positions and titles. They'll fight over pecking order. They'll fight over how you do operations. Just dumbest stuff that has nothing to bring anyone hope and just shows the community unhealthiness. 
And then the church gets really ugly by making big statements and we've become political. Sadly, in America, the American church for the last few decades has become more of a political movement than it has a church movement. We've become less about Jesus and more about political ideologies and, 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 and uh, following parties and cults of personality and everything else. It's depressing to see the church sell out its message for lesser things. Our worship is Jesus alone. And I don't care if what we believe one side of the political aisle or the other or some kind of goofy conspiracy theories along the way, it is dumb for us to make our message intertwined with our politics. It's amazing how the church has been good at, at condemning the sins of other kinds of people while washing our, sweeping our own under the rug and after they don't exist and covering our own while condemning others. We, are, we have been hypocritical. We have been an enigma to our cause and a blot to Christianity. And it's the reason why in a nation like ours, you see so many turning away from belief. Because we've made it difficult by making our message something other than being about Jesus. And James would say to us today, don't make it difficult. The good news is very simple. It got his love. And here's how he showed his love. He sent his son to die for our sins, to demonstrate forgiveness, to rise again, to show us life as eternal he is who he said he was and he invites us into he says if you believe for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life and let's not make it difficult as, and, and the church broadly needs to listen to this loud and clear because we're losing our we've for decades now we've sold out for the wrong stuff we become about like religion whatever is important to us. Basically, we say to people in culture, become like us in order to get to him. We don't say it that way. We know not to say it that way directly, but it's what we're about. It's what we make a big deal about. It's what we, what we end friendships over, what we rant about. It's, it's, we got to change our message if we're going to be effective for the kingdom. It's about the hope of God, the love of God, the gospel. As a local church, let's, Cedar Lake Lighthouse Church, let's not make it difficult. Let's serve our community. Let's love people. Let's never let, let's, and we have a good culture here, but let's never let pettiness set in. If you find yourself getting that way, you have a moment with God and say, let's never get to a spot where we get so petty that we get off the point for lesser things that matter too much to us. Let's love our community. Let's serve our community. About a couple of years ago, we changed our vision statement to say we are for Cedar Lake. And our long statement goes like this. For far too long, the church has been known for what it's against. We want to be known for what we are for. And we are for Cedar Lake. And the reason we are for people is because God is for people. And we want to be able to serve others. And when they say, why are you serving? They say, because we love you. But more than that, because God served us because he loved us. And God loves you and he served you. And point them to the love of God. Point them to the good news, the gospel. But when we're known for the wrong things, we lose our messaging. And it is a hard turn. For some of us, we can hear that and say, that makes sense. And then within a few weeks, we get hung up in the wrong things. It's a hard turn. But we as a broad churches and us as a specific church, let's not make it difficult for those who are turning to God, as James said. And then last of all is an individual you. Man, don't make it difficult. How do we do that? A lot of times it's about how we act at our job. Or on social media. Oh, God help us all the Christians out there on social media. One post, Jesus saves. The next post, you're an idiot if you don't see the world like I see the world. Next post, Jesus saves. The next post, I dislike the, the certain groups of people completely because of how they see the world or vote or whatever. And you're, you're all stupid. Next post, Jesus saves. Stop. 
Just stop. What in the world are we doing? Like, is that what matters to us? Who cares? It waters our message down. It, it, we've alienated so many people. We've been so bent out of shape over so many causes that make us mad. Ah! Jesus saves. It's like, really? Where's our messaging at? Let's not make it difficult. So people can't get to God. We want, we, we're trying to get them to be like us. Or they have to look past us and say, that's, what, that's Christianity? I don't want that. That's weird. That's, that's, that's offensive. That's hypocritical. That's arrogant. That's judgmental. That's condescending. That's angry. I don't need that. Hey, if you go to your job and you're wearing your Jesus pin on and your Jesus hat on and you treat your coworkers bad and you gossip behind their back and you treat them wrong, ah, stop that. Let's be Christians. Let's not make it difficult for those turning to God. James was right. And we're going to study what he had to say because he was the brother of Jesus who became a believer, who became a leader, who gave his life for the name of the guy he called his Lord, his Savior, Jesus. That's our hope today.